You can exercise all you want, eat all the right foods, sleep eight hours a night. If you are not breathing right, you will always be sick. James Nestor, international bestseller on breathing. As a species, we've largely lost the ability to breathe correctly. James travels the whole world trying to figure out what went wrong and how to fix it. 99% of people are breathing dysfunctionally. They don't realize the damage they're doing to their bodies and brains by being this way. Look at the way we sit all day long, the way we sleep, the way we eat. The modern world is conspiring to make us sick. Diabetes, asthma, metabolic and autoimmune issues, anxiety, even ADHD. Experts said it is 100% related to your breathing at night, especially. Really? Bad breathing habits are a recipe for disaster, which is what has happened for so many kids today. So if you're a parent and if you can hear them breathing when they're sleeping, this is a big red flag. But I believe that everybody can become a good breather and these steps are free. We can do this while we're seated here. So the first thing is to... Carbon dioxide is seen as this poison. Why? Levels over 800 into 1,000 can have serious issues with cognitive and physical functions. I've been recording our CO2 during this interview. It's going up. And if we were to continue working in here for the next few hours, you will... Jesus. James. Of all the things you could have committed your life to, you could have committed a decade of work and effort to, you decided to commit it to the subject matter of breath and breathing. Why? It was a number of things that happened personally, professionally, over a number of years. I never set out to write a book about breathing. I mean, what a boring subject, right? Until I started having breathing problems uh, that came back year after year. I was, I surf a lot in San Francisco. So I was getting bronchitis. I was getting pneumonia, mild pneumonia. Um, it was nothing to worry about. I'd go to my doctor, I'd be given a pack of pills and sent on my way. And this kept happening year after year until a doctor friend of mine was looking at me. We were out having a drink and she's like, I think there's something going on with your breathing. I said, breathing. You know, this is just something we do automatically. It's nothing I considered. She's like, oh, you might want to go to a breathwork class. And I went to a breathwork class and it completely blew me away on, on a number of levels. Um, I was able to get over the respiratory problems I had. I don't write about this in the book because I didn't want to make my experience be indicative of everyone else's experience. But all the issues I had completely went away, 100%. And so I started looking into this more just personally, what else I could learn about breathing and how it could benefit me for athletic performance, for sleep and more, and notice that my health was changing in all the right ways over and over again when I was adopting different habits. So that was more than 10 years ago, actually. That was probably 12 years ago. And then I started writing about freedivers, started freediving myself and learning the limits of breathing and how you can do things that are supposed to be scientifically impossible by harnessing the power of your breath. And that's what really got me interested as a science journalist. So your symptoms, the symptoms you had of what were those symptoms at the time? I was mouth breathing a lot. Yeah. Uh, when I was working out, I was always mouth breathing when I was jogging, I was mouth breathing, doing karate, mouth, mouth breathing, surfing. And I noticed at night, I 
could not remember a time when I did not go to sleep with a huge glass of water by my bedside. I would wake up numerous times throughout the night. My mouth was very dry, uh, very pasty in the morning. I thought this was completely normal. I also noticed that when I was working out at really high levels, I would start to wheeze a bit. Like I could hear myself breathing. And I thought this was normal. And whenever I talked to people about it, they said, oh, welcome to old age. This is what happens when you get older. And I didn't think that that was a good reason to be breathing so dysfunctionally. But it really took someone else to point it out for me to understand that maybe there was a problem there and maybe I should fix it. And your friend who was a doctor then suggested this breathwork class. You go to this breathwork mm-hmm. class. And is it the one session itself that helped you? Or was it the practices you took away from that session that helped you? That one session completely blew my mind. So it had all of the hallmarks of flakiness and new aginess, you know, all the people flowing, flowing clothes. Uh, there were some headbands. I said, good God, what am I doing here? There's a lot of this stuff in San Francisco. So I'm kind of used to it. Dream catchers, all that. And it wasn't until I sat down and started actually got rid of all of that, all those problems in my brain that were making me resist really giving myself to this practice, got rid of that, started breathing. And I, I write about this at the beginning of the book, but I completely sweated through uh, my t-shirt. It was not a warm room. It was quite cold in there. Sweat through my t-shirt. There's sweat marks on my jeans. My hair was sopping wet. And this was from sitting in a corner of a cold room, just breathing at this certain pattern. So it obviously released something in me. And when I mentioned this to doctors, I went back. They said, oh, you had a fever. Oh, you know, the room was too hot. Oh, you were covered in blankets. All of that was false. There was something else deeper happening. And they didn't understand it from their medical training. So I tried to get answers elsewhere. And that's what I spent years doing. You spent years doing. I mean, your your book on the subject matter comes out almost a decade later. Mm-hmm. So in hindsight now, you have those answers on why you sweated through your clothes and why you had that physiological reaction. What is the answer? (laughs) I do not have opinions as a science journalist. I am a filter. So (laughs) uh, my job is to talk to absolutely everybody. And especially when people, doctors tell me, oh, don't talk to those people. They don't know what they're talking about. Those are the first people I'm going to talk to. So I talk to everybody and try to synthesize what I've learned, the truth according to all of these different cultures, all of these different ways of learning, and put that in a book that the general public can understand. So I have my own personal views on it, but I try to keep my personal views out of what I write. And then the the sort of next significant, I guess, catalyst event that was an inspiration point for your work was in 2011. As you say, you went and covered the free diving championship in Greece. Mm -hmm. What did that experience add to the inspiration cloud that would then form the book? What did you learn about the nature of breath from that? Yeah, it's so funny. Uh, You know, as you go through life, there are some experiences that you have that you have no idea that you are opening a completely different door. And you're just gonna be walking through that door for the next decade. (laughs) So that's what happened in Greece. Didn't really know anything about it. Go out there and just have my mind blown. I mean, you have these people who are at the surface of the water, take a single breath of air, one breath. And dive down 120 meters on a single breath of air and come back up five minutes later 
and go and then get out of the way for the next competitor. So you watch them. The water's very clear there, right? It goes down. Visibility is 150 meters. You watch them just disappear into nothing the size of an ant and then completely disappear into the ocean and come back. And I said, my God, there's so much we don't know about breathing and also about the limits of the human body. I want to learn more about this. I want to experience this as well. Not diving down that deep, but I want to access more of what I've been given because I think we've been sold pretty short on what our limits are and what we should be doing and shouldn't be doing. But I think our bodies are have much more potential than that. When I was when I was reading through your book, you describe breath as a pillar of health, which is a pretty big statement to make. Mm-hmm. Because when we think of pillars of health, we might think of, you know, exercise or um diet but breath hasn't been considered a pillar of health i think to be honest for the first 27 for the first 29 years of my 30 year old life i purely viewed breath as this thing that just happens unconsciously that is inconsequential and it's only in recent times because your work has influenced some people very close to me that i started to second guess that where do we stand as a society at the moment when we're talking about the majority of people in terms of our view of what breathing is and the role it plays? And then I also want to understand um, why that's wrong. Because as I said, I thought of breathing as just this thing that happens. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was quite um, unnerving to understand that that view has potentially been impacting me in profound ways without me knowing it. Like you said, I've been pointing at the wrong thing. I've been thinking I need mm-hmm. some pills or... I just can't mm-hmm. sleep or I've, I've got, in, I'm, you know, someone might think they're an insomniac or whatever. But you make the case quite profoundly that breathing is much more than an unconscious act that we just do without thinking about. Well, breathing is something that just happens and how wonderful mm-hmm. that is that we've evolved to not have to think about every breath we take, right? That would be a real problem. But that doesn't mean we can't take conscious control of our breathing and then elicit different effects from our body. So we have adopted habits according to our breathing from our environment, from the way we sleep, from our mouth structure and more that are not the best habits to have for breath. So the reason why people spend so much time doing breath work and rehearsing slower breathing, lower breathing, breathing through the nose is to reset a natural habit so that you don't have to think about it. I mean, I don't want to have to constantly be checking in on my breath throughout the day. I want that to be automatic, but that takes a lot of time to get back to that healthy state to make it unconscious. Where do we get these bad habits from? And because I think, you know, surely my body, I'm the product of, you know, several, I don't know, thousands, gazillion years of evolution. Surely my body is doing it correctly by default. What is what has changed that is causing me to do it incorrectly your body is not doing this correctly by default what has changed is this modern environment is conspiring to make us sick and i don't think that that is an exaggeration at all if you look at the way we sit all day long if you look at the way we work if you look at the way we eat if you look at the way we sleep of all the pollution noise pollution air pollution we're surrounded by this is why we are so sick it is the environment the human body is so well equipped to live a healthy life which is why indigenous cultures the few left 
they don't need to go to a cardiologist or a pulmonologist or a dentist. They have straight teeth. They breathe perfectly. They don't have all of these problems that we have today. So these are diseases of civilization. The vast majority of problems we contend with, we have created in the last few hundred years. And one of the problems with breathing is that our facial structure does not allow us to breathe in a healthy way anymore. And it did hundreds of years ago. And we know that from the skeletal record. What are some of the um, the most common modern problems then that the environment we live in um, have caused? And we, I'm, here I'm talking about diseases. What mm -hmm. are the, the everyday diseases that you've discovered are byproducts of our misunderstanding and our bad ha breathing habits? Show me a list of the top diseases and they're all related to it, even diabetes. Who would have thought that the onset of diabetes could be triggered by poor breathing habits at night? But that is exactly what researchers have found because if you are choking on yourself all night, as so many people do, you aren't resting, you aren't entering stages of deep sleep, which means your body never restores and your body is going to break down. So researchers have, have known this for 50 years. There are scientific studies showing this over and over again. So that's just with, with diabetes and metabolic issues, autoimmune issues for the same reason. You're constantly breathing like this, stooped over. You're causing undue inflammation to your body. You're causing nervous system dysfunction. You're in that sympathetic state which after a while will trigger a bunch of autoimmune issues. So, so many of these things not exclusively are related to breath. They are exclusively related to diet, exercise, sleep, and breath. You can eat all the right foods. You can sleep eight hours a night. You can exercise all you want. If you are not breathing right, you will always be sick. And I've heard that six years ago by a researcher, and I believe it more now than I ever have. At the very start of your book, you you test these things on yourself. Mm -hmm. You did an experiment, which I found really, really interesting. I think that experiment has actually stayed with me for a long time. And then it's impacted me in the gym a lot every time I'm on that tread, bloody treadmill. <laughs> I'm thinking about what I read. But um, what, why did you want to do that experiment on yourself? And what was the experiment? I didn't want to do this experiment on myself. I, I really did not want to do it. No one else was going to do it. Really? There had never been a human trial of nasal breathing versus, versus mouth breathing for this amount of time. And I was talking to Jayakar Nayak, who's the chief of rhinology research at Stanford, the top, top of his field. And I said, we know what happens to animals when they breathe this way. We know all the deleterious effects of mouth breathing on kids, on adults, on old people, on sleep, on athletic performance. Why can't you test this? Let's get a big group of people and test this. He said, it'll never happen. We're not going to find funding. And he thought ethically there would be problems doing it because he knew what damage could be caused by becoming a mouth breather. And so after all this... I just kind of gave up and then I had an idea. I said, well, what if I did it? And what if I got one other person? We will sign up, we'll sign whatever waivers. And we did it. Doesn't, you know, it's just two people, but that was the maximum we were allotted. And he said, okay, but he had no money for it. So we had to pay for this experiment at Stanford, which was not the cheapest thing I've ever paid for in my life. <laughs> um, but I wanted to know, 
I, I'm writing about mouth breathing, writing about all the problems, I'm writing about my subjective experience of how it transformed my life becoming a nasal breather. I wanted to see that experience dictated and documented in data by machines. And that's why we did it. And how did it go? Terribly. It was awful. Um, so just to let, let people yeah. know, uh, this was an experiment in which for 10 days, we had our noses plugged up, right? Yeah. And then for another 10 days, we had all of that stuff released from our noses and we were almost exclusively nasal breathing. Everything else in those 10-day periods was exactly the same. We ate the same foods. We walked the same number of steps. We exercised the same. So exactly the same. And we did scientific um, studies and took a bunch of data before, during, and after. We were collecting data three times a day as well, looking at what was happening to our bodies, our sleep, our inflammation, and more. And we knew this wasn't going to be pleasant, uh, but I didn't know it was going to be this bad. Like it was really not trying to be overdramatic, but it was awful, awful. And uh, I'm so happy I never have to do that again. At the same time, I feel so sorry for people who do not realize that their noses are stuffed up, who have been living this way for years and don't understand that this is their main source of their issues with migraines, sleep problems and more. I can I could I could see it in you when you described it as being awful that you're almost teleporting yourself back to that to that chapter. I could see it in yeah. your face. But a little you, little PTSD from that still. Uh it was bad. Um when you say bad, what do you mean specifically as in It was the the first few days. So I did this with uh breathing researcher and breathing therapist Anders Olsen from Sweden. He was the only person that would do this. Uh and he flew from Sweden on his own dime to try to understand this. He had been talking about nasal breathing for 10 years, right? And so he said, okay, I want to put this to the test. I want to see if I'm right or wrong. So the first few days, we were kind of laughing. It was like, how bad did you sleep? You know, and we were comparing. We went from zero snoring to full-on snoring and sleep apnea within a couple of days. And so we were comparing and kind of showing off how sick we were. But then after about a week, we saw three days ago, like I wasn't able to sleep at night and I was dreading every single night going to sleep because you're, oh, my mouth was so dry and my sleep was so bad. I was so tired after sleeping nine, 10 hours a night. I was so tired and, and the data proved that as well. So it got really bad by the 10th day. Uh, we were in really bad shape. And, and again, I want to mention like so many people, especially during allergy season, are plugged up for months at a time. And they don't realize the damage they're doing to their bodies and brains by being this way. How many people are breathing incorrectly, in your view? How many people, if they, if they went and did a practice or they had the understanding that's in your book and that you speak about, mm -hmm. do you believe would have better overall health and well-being if they made a change to their breathing? By taking simple steps... I believe that everybody can become a better, what is considered a good breather. And these steps are free and they're available for everybody. If you look at the percentage of the population who is breathing dysfunctionally, I've heard different percentages from different people, respiratory therapists who do this all day long to elite 
trainers of Olympians, they say 95 to 99% of the people that they see are breathing dysfunctionally. So it's basically everybody. Some people, obviously there's a curve to that. Mm -hmm. There's an asthmatic with panic attacks that is breathing very dysfunctionally. And then there's an athlete who can push through the pain and win that competition, but is still breathing dysfunctionally. So there's a there's an arc to that. We all sit somewhere on that spectrum. We all do. Yeah. And I'm not a perfect breather. You're not a perfect breather. Like it's hard to find a perfect, perfect breather, just like it's hard to find someone that eats perfectly every single meal. And that's probably not the person you ever want to hang out with <laughs> anyway. You referred to tribes there and um, people that are not living in our environment. And also, you know, you, you talk a lot about breathing as a lost art. Mm -hmm. I'm so fascinated by, I think I spent the last couple of years really fascinated by how our ancestors lived their lives and how they did things. You know, I was talking to Dr. Daniel Lieberman about mm -hmm. running and feet and muscle strength and all those things. And spoken to so many other people about processed food and, you know, all of these modern sort of misalignment diseases where we're not living in alignment with ourselves have, have become a really important part of my understanding of how I should be living now. Breathing as a lost art. What did you learn when you looked back through history about how people breathe? And um, what did that tell you about how we're doing it wrong? I learned that we didn't need breathwork classes hundreds of years ago. We already had bodies that were able to breathe in properly. We were living in an environment that supported healthy breathing. I love Lieberman's work, by the way. I've learned so much from them, including a lot of this stuff on scales and, and, and breathing. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot, a lot from him. So, you know, people say, well, how do you know that? We can't go back in time. What you can do is look at indigenous cultures, which is what Lieberman and so many other people have done. And they found they don't have problems with their feet. They don't have problems with their backs. They don't have heart disease. They don't have asthma. Why is it that Mennonites, uh, this is, these are these groups in uh, the U.S. that live this very traditional lifestyle, right? So some people say that asthma is, is genetic. So Mennonites and Quakers who don't, aren't around any technology, right? They have 0.5% of their population has asthma. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the U.S., 10% of the population has asthma. So obviously the environment has so much to do with our health and it absolutely affects our breathing for all the things I mentioned earlier. How are you sitting? How are your stress levels? How are you sleeping? How are you working out? All of these things will weigh upon how healthy you are uh, able to breathe. And so the in the, the context of the modern world, so if we didn't need breath work, you know, a couple hundred years ago, the introduction of things like pollution, I understand. But are there everyday things like the chair I'm sat in right now and the way that I work every day that have impacted breathing and then the modalities like asthma and these other things? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And we could go through a few of Please. those things. So when you're sitting, as I sit eight hours a day, I try to stand at the standing desk as well. You are inhibiting your ability to breathe properly. So I'm sitting forward in this chair right now. Even if I wanted to take a deep breath, it's really hard. I have to struggle to do that because my diaphragm, which is right underneath the lungs, is unable to descend properly. 
to allow for that proper inhale. Give me an explanation so, of what the diaphragm is. Sure, the diaphragm is this umbrella-shaped muscle that sits underneath the lungs. The lungs are just like two balloons. They don't inflate themselves. They need the diaphragm to come down. It creates a vacuum and air comes into the lungs. When we exhale, that diaphragm pushes up and pushes the air out of the lungs. So that's how we breathe. It's not the lungs doing the work. The lungs are just these fleshy bags, right? It's that diaphragm descending, creating a vacuum, air comes in, and that diaphragm ascending, lifting back up and pushing that air out. So you need proper diaphragmatic movement in order to breathe properly. When our bodies aren't allowing us to do that, when you're sitting on a bus or sitting on a plane for 12 hours at a time and you're seated like this, you aren't able to breathe properly. That means you're only breathing into your chest. You aren't accessing all of this other area. If you're just breathing into your chest, you have to breathe way more breaths. The reason is so much of that area you're bringing that air into does not participate in gas exchange. It does not soak up that oxygen that's in the air. So most of us spend most of our days like this. Slumped over in the chair, like, yeah. And breathing like that. We can live this way. Doesn't mean we're healthy. We can live on three pieces of pizza every day, right? We have enough calories to do that. Doesn't mean we're healthy. So that's, that's the number one thing. You can sit in a chair properly, to breathe, right? But it takes some effort. If you look at indigenous cultures again, look at how they're sitting. Look at their spines. Like it's a beautiful thing. They're sitting in a way that is conducive to proper breathing. Any statue, any ancient statue, look at the posture. Look the posture is for people that can't see this right mm -hmm. now. The posture is straight up or is it, it is, curved? Back? It is it is it is straight up but relaxed at the same time. It is having a straight spine. I know once you learn this, it just it, it makes you neurotic after a while. But <laughs> that's the first thing is to really notice how you're sitting. When we get stressed out, when we're answering emails, we're over a laptop. I spend so much of my life doing this. Then we also have a stress response, which further reduces our ability to breathe properly. We start to breathe too much. We start holding our breath. Then we breathe too much. Our posture is like this. So everything is conspiring to make us really poor breathers. And this isn't some far-flung hypothesis I have. It's, it's basic biomechanics of how the body works. The diaphragm part's really interesting to me because mm -hmm. the, the, you refer to, and many people refer to the diaphragm as the second heart mm -hmm. because it kind of, it's a muscle that is uh, autonomous to some degree. Mm -hmm. Like the heart, I don't control my heart. Mm -hmm. I can control my diaphragm, but mm -hmm. when I don't think about it, it kind of controls itself. Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an autonomic function. But by taking conscious control of that diaphragm, you can control your heart. You can control your blood flow. And that the diaphragm also does an incredible amount of work pumping blood into the heart and pumping lymph fluid throughout the body. So when you see people only using 5-10% of their diaphragmatic movement, which is considered normal now, just moving the diaphragm this much, they, their hearts have to work so much harder to just pump blood. 
And their bodies have to work so much harder to pump lymph fluid, which you need to get rid of all that waste, right? The body likes movement. These fluids need to be moving. So just by taking a slightly deeper breath and exhaling a little more, you were able to help your heart rate out, uh, which is why your heart rate will start to go down after a while. You're able to help your blood pressure in some cases. You're able to pump lymph fluid in more just by taking a slower, deeper breath. And, uh, you know, just look to the animal kingdom for your guidance on this. We don't need any fancy um, animation to show us what proper breathing is. Look at a healthy dog sleeping. Look at a healthy infant sleeping and breathing. Look at indigenous cultures, how they sleep, how they breathe. You can't tell their breathing. And that's what healthy breathing is. It should not be perceptible. So when a lot of people hear about healthy breathing, they want to overdo it, right? They want yeah, I feel great. <laughs> if you look at a monk or someone who's a master breather, you cannot tell their breathing. It's so soft and so subtle that it just comes in and comes out. That is someone who is balanced. Their nervous system is balanced. Their breathing is balanced. Are these habits we can learn? You talk there about posture and about the diaphragmatic um, movement and how, what percentage of the diaphragm we're we're kind of using and how much that's filling our lungs are these habits we can learn absolutely because even posture feels like it? it's like it's quite hard to sit like that for if you start paying attention to your breathing your posture is going to get better it is hard to be leaning over like this and take take a huge breath look what happens to your posture so form dictates your breathing your breathing dictates your form that was written in the Tao like 1200 years ago so once you learn how this proper slow deep breathing works your posture by virtue of that will get better would you recommend because a lot of people do work in offices i'm one mm -hmm. of them i spend a lot of my days mm -hmm. sat down 10 hours yeah. looking down at a screen what would you recommend for for us well, I think the science is pretty clear on standing desks. Uh, convertible standing desks are really helpful to sit for part of that time, to stand for part of that time. Whenever I'm on the phone, which is often I'm standing, so I just press a little button and I go back to standing. When you're standing, you're opening up your chest, these intercostals. You're opening up to allow yourself to naturally breathe deeper breaths. So you can do that sitting, but you just look kind of corny, like <laughs> sitting like this all the time. So I think that that's a good hack. I think that the science is very clear that every couple hours, I'm not very good at this, I'm trying to get better, go for a walk for 10 minutes, take your call while you're walking around to reset things. That's just one of many different components, looking at the posture and its relationship to healthy breathing. The um, when I was reading through your work and I was thinking about having this conversation with you, this is really, I guess, slightly obvious, but I also can understand how it's a stupid question. Um, which is, if nose breathing is so beneficial for our health and well-being, then why do we have the capability of breathing through our mouths? <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? It's a great question. How wonderful that we have a backup system in case anything happens to our noses that we don't suddenly die, right? So you can drink through your nose, right? It's really hard to do that, but you can, and it goes down to your stomach, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Just like with breathing, like, again, look at the animal kingdom. Look at a cheetah running at 100 kilometers per hour. How is it breathing? In and out through its nose. 
The only time that a horse starts breathing through its mouth is when it's sick. So that is a sign that it's sick. A horse running at a sprint is breathing through its nose. This is what we this is the organ we are designed to breathe through. And no one who has studied rhinology would argue otherwise. There are 30 different functions that the nose does for breathing. So not only does it help filter air out and heat air, but it helps capture moisture, about 40% more moisture. So you don't have to constantly be drinking water. When I see people jogging and they're breathing through their mouth and they're carrying like four different water bottles, they wouldn't need those water bottles if they just learned to breathe through their noses because the body is designed to capture that moisture. That's what the nose does and all of those hairs do. And then there's nitric oxide, which is this miraculous molecule that plays an essential role in vasodilation, circulation, and more. And it kills viruses and bacteria. This all happens in the nose. This does not happen in the mouth. Nitrous oxide is, is only happens in the nose. Nitric oxide. Nitric yeah, we oxide. get six, six times more nitric oxide just breathing through the nose. Six times more. How? And if you, because of all of these different tissues, oh. they, they release nitric oxide. And there is some science showing that this boost of nitric oxide can significantly help us defend more from viruses and bacteria, including colds. So breathing in and out through the nose. There's a lot of work in nitric oxide and COVID rehabilitation. Who knew we can produce so much of it in our noses? And if you hum, you can increase that to 15-fold. So humming, you're going to annoy everyone if you do this, increases that nitric oxide 15-fold. And there was one study that showed this guy completely got rid of his rhinitis. Uh, just by humming for about 10 minutes, four times a day. So these are simple tricks you can do. They are free, available for everyone. The humming also helps to calm the body down because we have the vagal nerve, right? Vagus nerve, mm -hmm. vagal tone is right along here. So when you hum, mm, you're sending mm. signals to the vagus nerve and you're calming your body down. What, what, what is humming doing? Humming is stimulating more nitric oxide and allowing it to break free from all of those tissues. So you hum in your nose like, mm. Mm hmm Yeah, and you can feel the vibration there. So somebody mm. sent me this device like three months ago that they now have a device for people who don't want to hum that goes on your nose and hums for you. If that's going to help you hum, you can do that. But I've found it's just kind of easier to pick a song you like and hum that. When you talk about the common cold and, you know, flu and infection did you see a clear correlation between people that had good breathing habits and the common cold and um bad breathing habits and there have never been like a huge study done done on that on humming and nasal breathing and the common and there never will be right no one's no one's gonna fund that i can say anecdotally absolutely and if you look at the biochemistry if you look at the physiology if you look at all the functions of the nose you can deduce it seems very clear to me that you will be susceptible less to certain viruses, certain bacteria by breathing in and out of, of your nose. You mentioned COVID there. Mm -hmm. Your book came out <laughs> right as COVID hit, which is unbelievable timing. I have to yeah, say. yeah. Some people thought I'd planned that somehow. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was interesting. Um, the first week the book came out, somebody criticized it for taking advantage of this pandemic 
without bothering to notice the book was printed and in warehouses six months before anyone had ever heard the word COVID, you know, and I mm -hmm. worked on this book for years and years and years. So yeah, lockdown in the U.S. was in March. This book came out in June, uh, right wow. on the heels of it, which was absolutely bizarre to me. And all of the research looking into breathing patterns, looking into nasal breathing, how that can help rehabilitate people with long COVID and with acute cases of COVID is very solid. And I still don't see anybody talking about this. What, what are the most important things that we're not talking about as it relates to things like COVID from, from your research and your book? I think the most important, well, it depends on, on who's talking. People in breathwork communities have been talking about, yogis have been talking yeah, about, yeah, yeah. Buddhists have been talking about it. So I think in Western medicine, you come in and your doctor assesses your health, listens to your heart, maybe looks at your cholesterol. They're not looking at your breathing. And this is especially important for kids. I cannot tell you how many hundred thousands by now of parents have written me, their kids are on all these different pills. None of them are doing anything. They have ADHD, they're flunking out of school. And I am astounded that more pediatricians and more doctors aren't looking into this because so many millions of kids are suffering because of their breathing is, is so terrible. And it's been so terrible for so long that their, their bodies are now rebelling against them. And why are kids breathing in such a way? Because you think you think of a kid, you think they. I think we form these bad habits when we're adults or later on in life. But to thought the thought that a kid has developed such a bad habit somewhere is quite hard to take. See, all roads go back to those skulls, right, and that anthropology and those ancient cultures, right. So these kids are not able to breathe well because their facial development is is so retronathic, which means it has grown so far backwards that their airways aren't able to open up enough. So whenever they put their heads on a pillow, that's what it sounds like. So it is a problem with facial development that we did not have hundreds of years ago. And you can see this. I spent years looking at ancient skeletons and they did not have these problems. So right out of the gate, we're messed up, right? Our, our facial function is messed up and it's making it harder for us to breathe. Add on top of that pollution, bad sitting habits, bad breathing habits, and you have a recipe for disaster, which is what has happened for so many kids today. So I have to ask why that mm -hmm. facial um, issue started and how that is being passed on. Because in my mind, evolution or de-evolution or whatever the word would be in this case stopped <laughs> i thought we stopped changing and evolving because we are no longer being selected out of the gene pool there is no stopping evolution evolution means change throughout time it does not mean progress so when people use the word evolution to mean we're evolving uh, better and we have these better capabilities. That's not what the word actually means. It's change throughout time. And we can change for better or for worse. And for the past few hundred years, we have been changing for the worse. This is not my opinion. This is a scientific fact. So it comes back to that question, why? Why would an animal change for the worse? And it goes back to my answer the environment. We can trace the exact point that our facial structure 
started growing in this deformed way to make us less susceptible to, to healthy breathing to that changed in such a way to make us such poor breathers. And that point is right when industrialized food came into different cultures. So that happened at different times, came in first to England and France, then it spread to Germany, then it spread to you know, Scandinavia, then it spread through the rest of the world. You can see in a single generation of eating industrialized foods, things that were canned, things that were bottled, things that were baked, things with sugar in it. Single generation, 50% of the population will have crooked teeth that didn't have it before. Crooked teeth are indicative of having a mouth that's too small for your face. Your mouth grows too small, teeth have nowhere to grow in, so they grow in crooked. What else is a problem with having a mouth that's too small for your face? You have an airway that's too small. You aren't able to breathe properly. So we can see that exact point. And researchers have done this for decades and decades. And I've seen these skulls before, after industrialization. And the same story plays out no matter where you are on the planet. So that is what is what has ruined our faces. And that's why we look so different than we did 300 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago. Why did our mouths get smaller at that point? Because of industrialized food elicits very little chewing. You don't need to chew very much when you're eating soft food. So every, if you think about it, our ancestors chewed for like three, four hours a day, chewing raw meat, bones, roots. Uh, yeah. Think about the food you ate today. Well, maybe not you because you're probably eating <laughs> healthy food, but... Uh, the food that most people are eating, mm -hmm. everything's soft. It takes a few bites, it's gone. There's no rigorous chewing. And if you don't get that early on in life, your skeleture does not develop properly and your musculature does not develop properly. And you grow a different kind of face that makes you much more susceptible to poor breathing habits. Does that then mean that one way we can avoid these breathing-related disorders later in life would be to have our children eating more difficult foods when they're younger. Absolutely. And if you look at the reasons why our ancestors all had these pronathic, really strong faces, these huge airways, it's because they were breastfed for a minimum of two years. And after that, they weren't weaned onto applesauce or baby food. They ate adult food, right? There was no such thing as Gerber's back then, a few hundred years ago. They went from being breastfed to eating adult food, which requires a lot of chewing. That's the main driver behind how our faces have developed and devolved in the past 300 years. The point there about being breastfed for two years, mm. why is that consequential? This is where I get into a lot of trouble here. So I want to be very, <laughs> don't worry. I'm going <laughs> to Do I get in trouble as well? You, you <laughs> might, you just you, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> So I want to be extremely clear here. <laughs> I am a journalist and I go out and talk to experts in the field. These are not my opinions. What I'm telling you is what I have been told by dozens and dozens of experts. And I'm not shaming anyone for feeding their children any way they want. That's none of my business, okay? What I have learned from several experts is the stress and chewing required for breastfeeding will help pull the face out and develop a larger airway. 
Again, I want to be very clear. I'm not shaming modern mothers. You're under an incredible amount of stress. Bottle feeding, perfectly fine. You want to do that? I think it's great. But that stress, and, and you think about it, like for two years, if you're constantly pulling that face out, the face is going to develop differently, right? So that makes sense to me. But even if a kid is, is bottle-fed, which is great if you want to bottle-feed a kid, as long as they're eating healthy food that they actually chew after that, I believe, my personal opinion is, you can develop all of that proper facial structure. And you can also use some different orthodontic devices to help push that along, and you will be perfectly fine. What is the difference between the bottle and the nipple? Like in terms of what it does to my... Uh, yeah, see, when I, when I mentioned we're both going to get in trouble here, uh, this is what I was talking about. Okay. I will not visually demonstrate. You we can have a... look it up on YouTube, anybody. But there is a, it's much easier to feed from a bottle. It requires less, less stress to feed from a bottle. When you are breastfeeding, it is much more activating for the infant to have to glom on to the breast and the nipple goes actually deep into their mouth, almost down their throat, and it requires more chewing stress. We, we know this. Ah, okay. Which is why a lot of kids, when they're given the choice between the two, they want the bottle because the bottle is easier. They want more food more quickly. And, and again, I want to be clear, just because you were bottle fed or whatever early on does not mean you're doomed. Mm. Uh, it's, some of this sounds depressing, but I considered it inspiring and empowering to know the science behind this so you can fix what the core issue is. And I'm convinced that kids who are bottle fed can be wonderful, perfect breathers by adopting other habits beyond that. You mentioned hyperactivity mm -hmm. as being correlatory to breathing. Mm -hmm. So if you're a parent and you have kids who are having health issues, even if they don't have health issues, look at how they're breathing at night. This is so important. Look at how they're breathing in the day. If they're breathing the vast majority of their breath through their mouth, you have to fix that. Number one, they will be much more susceptible to asthma, allergies, and other issues later on in life, especially at night if they are breathing through an open mouth. And if you can hear them breathing when they're sleeping, this is a big red flag that you better look into immediately because there will be so many downstream issues caused by that breathing pattern. Like This is increased risk of diabetes, increased risk of autoimmune issues, increased risk of asthma, ADHD, and more. So some researchers, th this is not my words, this is what they told me. They said, there is no such thing as ADHD. What that is, is sleep disordered breathing period. Really? They said it is 100% related to your breathing at night, especially. So again, that is not my view. This is what they have said. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I don't think it's too far to say the vast majority of those issues, if your kid has sleep apnea or is snoring, are caused by that. They are not sleeping well. If you are not sleeping well, what do you do all day long? Your body is trying to stay awake. So they're given Ritalin to stay awake. And they're given sleeping pills to go to sleep. Those sleeping pills will make their breathing worse because they loosen all of the muscles in here and they cause more resistance when they're breathing. 
So even if kids, even if you hear a slight resistance to it, that is cause for alarm as well. I know this seems overblown, like some some crazy warning, but you can, there are 500 scientific references available for free on my website. Look at the work by Christian Gimeno, who was at Stanford for 40 years. He was sounding the alarm in the 70s and nobody listened to him. And people still aren't listening to this and it is a serious problem. So what's true for kids is also true for adults, but I'll just cap that off right there. I mean, please do not cap it off ever. <laughs> I prefer when you talk. So um, the ADHD point is fascinating to me because it's been a huge topic of conversation in society because mm -hmm. of the apparent rise um, in the disorder, but the mm -hmm. certain rise in the diagnosis of the disorder. Mm -hmm. These researchers and scientists that believe that ADHD is purely a consequence of early breathing habits, what evidence have they got for that? Or what studies have they done to show the correlation between how we breathe when we're little and our chance of ADHD. When they fix the breathing, the ADHD goes away. Really? For the majority of the cases. Not for everybody. For the majority of the cases, it disappears. You can look at the studies. You know, if you, I'm, I'm happy to provide those for you. And I, to me, it makes sense. It's if you're struggling to sleep you are never going to be fully aware during during the daytime, right? And this is one of the reasons why so many kids get their adenoids taken out, their tonsils taken out, and more. But unless you fix the breathing habits, you can do those surgeries and they can be very helpful. Unless you fix the breathing habits, all of those problems tend to come back, sometimes even more so. So you're not fixing the core issue. And the core issue is breathing and breathing retraining, breathing habits. Ahead of this um, conversation, my, you know, we were doing some research and we found that study that analyzed more than 11,000 children over six years beginning at six months of age. And that revealed that children suffering from sleep disordered breathing had a higher incidence of behavioral and emotional issues such as hyperactivity, aggressiveness, depression, and anxiety. They are 50 to 90% more likely to, to develop ADHD-like symptoms than were normal breathers. That blew my mind. There it is right there. Right. <laughs> I'm glad that you, you yeah. mentioned that and I didn't. Yeah, yeah and there's, there's dozens of studies showing the same thing over and over and over. The question then becomes, I guess, is if I have ADHD and I'm 30 years old. Uh, yeah, I, I think it depends on who you are. Okay. Uh, I don't think that there's a blanket prescription or a blanket guarantee on any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on what's the root cause of that ADHD. We mm -hmm. know in kids, it's treated as a neurological problem, right? If that were true, then the drugs should work and they don't, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I believe it's a physiological problem. It's a breathing problem. And that, that study is just one of many that, that has espoused that. If you're talking about an adult with ADHD, what I know about adopting healthy breathing habits, you will only benefit. That benefit might be this big or it might completely transform your life, mm -hmm. right? You will only know once you do it. So I don't feel comfortable guaranteeing anyone of anything. There might be some respiratory therapists or breathing coaches who will say, absolutely, I can cure your ADHD with these breathing practices. That's fine. But uh, I don't think it's the same prescription for, for everybody. I know it'll help, though. Um, going further back up this train of thought, then, we we're talking about um, exercise and nose breathing at the very start of this thread of thought. And 
I have sat here with a few people now. I think it was Peter Atia who was talking to me about VO2 max, mm-hmm. a subject matter I don't still mm-hmm. fully don't understand. But from what I understood, it was the amount of oxygen we're able to take from each breath. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a general measurement of the amount of ox, how efficient you are at taking up oxygen, which is related to breathing, but it's also related to the respiratory system and how you're able to extract that oxygen from your lungs into your bloodstream. And it's a good gauge of general athletic performance. It's not everything. And mm-hmm. there's been some pushback against using that as a as a measurement. But but it's a general, general gauge, a good tool for that. Is there a correlation between our health outcomes, how long we'll live, and our lung capacity, our VO2 max, and all of that stuff? Is there a correlation there? So I had the same question years ago, and I started looking into it, and it turns out that numerous studies have found that the healthier and larger your lungs are, the longer you will live. That is the greatest indicator of lifespan, was lung size and lung health. The greatest indicator of lifespan. The greatest indicator, according to these studies, the Framingham study looked at 5,200 people over the course of 70 years, and they found that the people who lived the longest had the largest and healthiest lung function. They even did studies in which they were looking at people who had uh, lung transplants, so surgically implanted lungs. Those who were given larger lungs lived way longer than those given normal size or smaller lungs. So no matter how you get these larger lungs, it's better. And luckily, we don't need to get a transplant to do this. We can practice healthy breathing. We can practice stretches. We can exercise. And this naturally can keep our lung size up. It's very sad when you start looking at these charts of what happens after you're 30. You're almost there, so get ready. It's a, it's a real bummer. But your lung function starts dropping off uh, uh, very quickly. And especially for women uh, around 50 and 60, your lung function and your lung size starts shrinking, shrinking, shrinking up which means at the time you need more oxygen more easily, it's much harder to get that. And that's where people's health really starts uh, disintegrating. They start having problems. The good news is you can stave off this deterioration, this shrinking of your lungs by doing all the stuff we're talking about, by doing breath work exercise, by exercise. What is yoga but stretching? And breathing into this lung and breathing into that lung. So the yogis knew this thousands and thousands of years ago. And it's the, it almost feels like that downward spiral is kind of self-reinforcing and self-fulfilling because if my lung capacity deteriorates, my movement and my exercise um, capacity will deteriorate, which means my lung capacity will deteriorate, which means I'll move less. Which It's kind of this downward spiral, right? Ab- absolutely. And it's... My belief, after studying this stuff for so long, that that is the thing you want to pay attention to more more than anything else, especially as you grow older, your lung function, how much air you can pack into your lungs, how long you can hold your breath. All of this is indicative of your general respiratory function and your general health. So that that little hint of using a breath hold every morning to see where you are physically and mentally, I think is good. They've used it for thousands and thousands of years, and now it's coming back. This is something that a lot of these longevity experts aren't looking into. They're looking into nutrition and exercise. They're not looking into lung capacity. We get more energy from breath than we do from food and drink. 
right? We take 30 pounds of air in and out of our lungs every single day. And so I, I, I find it interesting. They're focused on all these micronutrients. All that stuff's important, right? I believe most of it. But from what I know, a lot of them aren't focused very much on their breathing. I want to make sure that I have something to, that I can take into my own life there mm-hmm. for the expansion of my lung capacity because I'm mm-hmm. sold on the importance of it. So um, exercise expands mm-hmm. my lung capacity. Yeah, 15, 20%. Just, just by exercising, by virtue of exercise. If you're a good exerciser, your lung capacity will, will stay up. Cardiovascular exercise. Yes, cardiovascular exercise. And There's then, ways to access that a little more. If you're dysfunctionally please. breathing when you're working out, you're uh-huh. not doing yourself too many favors. So you have to remember those simple, basic things. You have to learn how to take a proper breath, then apply that to your workouts. You will see such an incredible difference once you do this. This is what yoga is good for. It's hard to do yoga without breathing well, right? You can do it, but by virtue of all those different poses, they're meant to open up your chest, right? To expand this area. So yoga, cardiovascular exercise with proper breathing through my nose, breathwork practices, mm-hmm. the start of the day. I think biomechanics, the first thing is awareness to any of this stuff. You can take your hands. We can do this while we're seated here. You can put it above your sit bones here. Yeah. And when you breathe in, breathe very, very low. And you want your hands to move out laterally. I don't care what your stomach's doing, moving out laterally. So as you breathe in... When you say low, you mean in my belly? You want your hands to be moving outwards, okay? I don't care what's happening with your lung, with your uh, stomach. I can hold my breath and move my stomach in and out. So when people talk about a belly breath, that's not what we're doing. When your hands are moving out laterally, that means your diaphragm is descending. That's how we can see if you're taking a proper deep breath. So as you breathe in, you want your hands to be moving outward. And if you take a cloth measuring tape, you can actually measure your progress this way. The next thing you wanna do is take your hands, okay? Mm -hmm. Take your four fingers, place them on your collarbone, and put your, this one's very weird. Place your middle finger right there. So it's only your middle finger that's touching. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we're going to breathe deep. Then we're going to move that breath up into our chest. Okay. Don't move your shoulders. You want to see those fingers naturally separating. Uh. Okay. So this is not a flexing <laughs> thing. Your shoulders stay down. It's like this. Just like this, fingers on the collarbone. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a big breath into our lower abdomen area. Move it up. And you want your chest to be expanding outward. The last thing we want to do, take your hands and put them, especially you You need to do this. Take your hands, put them around your neck. Yeah. I want you to do that same breath. You should feel zero tension in your neck. There's none of this going on, okay? It should feel soft and supple. So let's take that belly to the chest breath. If there's any tension, do it again until there's no tension. Okay, now try that again, keeping your shoulders down, okay? Do not move your shoulders up. There's none of this going on. You're very soft, very relaxed. Take your hands above the hip bones. When you're breathing in very deep, those hands should be out like this, like wings. Yeah. Okay? And you're going to breathe in deep, and those hands should be moving out laterally. 
you will start to feel those organs getting compressed. That's good. You want that. Then you can move it up one more time. So we're going to start low and we're going to move that breath up to the chest. Keep your shoulders down. Try it again. Keep the shoulders down. There you go. And those fingers should be separating. So this is something that you can check in if those hands are moving out laterally. If those hands are separating on your chest, you are taking a proper biomechanical breath. And that's what you need to focus on. And you'll notice once you start learning how to access these different areas, you start applying this to working out and your performance will tend to go up. You'll be less exhausted at the end. You'll just feel better all around. So we should expect our, our chest to come, kind of move outwards as we breathe in. You, you want to see your chest moving outwards because most of your lungs, the expansion is in your back, but some of that is going to be happening. This is not a pose that you want to do like this, right? You should be very loose, very limber. And when you breathe in, you want that air to fill all the way up there, but you want to start low first. That means the diaphragm is descending. Most of the air that is soaked up from the lungs and that gas exchange happens at the bottom of the lungs. So you want to be able to access the bottom of those lungs. Is there a certain way that I, because when you say you want to start by breathing at the bottom, mm -hmm. is how do I know? So it, the, the symptom of me breathing at the bottom is it coming out out my 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 sort of what do they call this my abdomen coming outwards on the sides that's right because everyone calls this a belly breath so people do this with their belly but you can move your belly independently of your breathing yeah this is a way that you can't cheat so a tape measure is good and if you get an inch inch and a half that's pretty good but you can work that up and if you see really good breathers people have practiced a lot of yoga and done it the right way they can have this massive expansion and this is what ties into free divers free divers are the experts at accessing every square inch of their lung capacity to fill it with air and that's what they do which is why if you ever see free divers go to one of these competitions they're short people, tall people, fat people, whatever. They all have these enormous chests <laughs> because they've been able to develop this incredible lung capacity. One of the things that um, I think causes shallow breath is this kind of constant state of fight or flight, stress, anxiety, screens, social media. And it's funny because whenever people would, would have been listening to this podcast and started heard you talk about breath, and they would realize that they were probably at that exact moment doing really shallow breaths. You talk about these free divers who are able to extract, you know, 80, use 80, 90% of their diaphragm or more. Where you said we use 10, roughly 10%. use about 10% and oftentimes less than that, the average person. What is the correlation between like stress and breathing? And also, I'm talking now about like the everyday angst of life. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about the skeleton, we've talked about anthropology, we've talked about biomechanics and posture, but something else that ties into this, you're 100% right, is, is psychology, is your brain. 
So how you breathe affects how your brain works, affects your anxiety, but your anxiety also affects how you're breathing. So again, it's another one of those circles. What happens so often is when we're at work, we're so sensitized to threats and to fear that we overreact when something happens. Even though it's not threatening our life, we get a nasty email from a friend or a email from the boss that's disappointed at the last project you did and we get stressed out, right? And so what, what is the physiological response to stress is we clench up, we hold our breath and then we breathe like this. And we hold our breath again and we breathe like this. You think about thousands of years ago when we were out in the wilds, what would we do if there was a threat approaching? You'd hold your breath to be silent and then you breathe too much to get your respiratory system ready to either fight it off or to run away. So we're having the same response in our day-to-day -day lives now because we're so oversensitized to it. So researchers have different names for this. They call it email apnea or continuous awareness. I mean, there's an academic name for it, partial attention syndrome. Um, I prefer email apnea, easier to remember. No matter what you call it, it's the idea that when you're in the office place, you're breathing dysfunctionally because of this constant stress loop. And they've found, there were some NIH studies on this, they've found that breathing this way can have long-term damage to your health, high blood pressure issues, all the things we had talked about, metabolic dysfunctions and more, which makes sense because you're just constantly in this loop of fear and threat and stress. So the quickest, most effective way, way more than drugs, to take control of this stress is to take control of your breathing. And this has been documented time and time again. So when you notice you're breathing this way, you stop. What I like to do is breathe two breaths in and then an exhale looks like this. That resets your respiratory system, that resets your breathing pattern. And then you can do a few rounds of that and go back to very simple five second in, five second out. So let's just pretend yeah. you're in line at the airport. Uh, someone's cut you off. You ordered something at Starbucks. They gave you the wrong, you know, all the awesome. things that are just yeah. drive us crazy nowadays. At that moment, I want you to breathe in, pause, breathe in again, let it out. Relax yourself a little bit when you're doing these breaths, okay? Breathe okay. in. Breathe in again. And let it out. Do that one more time. Breathe in. A little more subtle. Let in again. And let it out. So you did this in a very exaggerated way, which is fine. But you can do this so no one can tell you're doing it. You can do it very subtle. You probably feel a little different now than you did before. Yeah, so much different. You can return to then a slow, low rhythmic breathing pattern from there or whatever makes you comfortable. I like five seconds in, five seconds out. Also, what's beneficial for people if it's comfortable for them is four seconds in, six out will really mellow you out. And you could try that right now. Breathe in. Okay. First okay. of all, slow. Okay. I should not be yeah, yeah. seeing you. Okay, breathe. you shouldn't see it. Okay. We're going to breathe in just very, very lightly. We're going to relax here. Why does it matter if you see it? 
because you're trying too hard. Okay. And you, this is not, there is a time and place for the, <laughs> <laughs> this is not okay. it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. So breathe in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, six, breathe in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, six. Doesn't have to be that exact pattern, but this will trigger all of that parasympathetic response in your body. You can see this if you're looking at your heart rate variability. It's amazing to see the, the difference that this happens just after a few breaths. Look at looking at your HRV, looking at your heart rate, looking at your stress levels. What is it doing? You mentioned parasympathetic and resetting the respiratory system. Mm-hmm. But if I, you know, what is the parasympathetic and the respiratory system for dummies? What is mm-hmm. that? So how you breathe is going to activate your nervous system function. Your nervous system function is going to activate everything in your body. So we can take conscious control of our breathing. We can't take conscious control of our heart rate or liver function or any of that. We can take control of our breathing. When we take control of our breathing, we can hack into our nervous system. So you can be in a sympathetic state just like we were. You take a couple of those double inhales and exhales. What sympathetic that state? Is, sympathetic state is the act, the fight or flight. This okay. is the action part of your uh, nervous system. When you're in this state, you are ready for action. And what happened, which is great, we want to be ready for action. We want to be ready to fight or run away from stuff. We do not want to be in this state all day long. Anxiety, angst, stress. Anxiety, stress, because this is where autoimmune issues and so many other problems come from by constantly staying stressed. We want stress. We want to be able to access stress for short amounts of time. Then we want to flip back into this parasympathetic, this relaxing state. If you look at, once again, animals in the wild, you even look at like a gazelle that's been attacked, you know, five minutes later, it's just sleeping. So it has a nervous system that's able to pivot from one to the other. Unfortunately, we live in an environment where we're always activating, always pushing towards that sympathetic and it's making us sick, really, really sick. So your breathing is the quickest way of taking control of acute stress. So pills work, okay, other modalities work, but in that moment is when you need the most help and your breathing is the thing that can get you there. So people that have chronic stress must have awful breathing. Absolutely. And they've they've documented that. They've looked at their breathing, they've looked at their carbon dioxide levels, and carbon dioxide is indicative of how slow you're breathing. If your levels are very low, that means you breathe like this. So you're just off-gassing all of this CO2, and they're always low, especially for anxiety and panic as well. They're always low, extremely low. You ask someone with acute panic or anxiety to hold their breath, this is usually what happens. (laughs) I'm never doing that again. (laughs) I've seen this hundreds and hundreds of times. So by breathing slowly, you're making them more comfortable with more CO2. You're making them more comfortable with their nervous system function with themselves, which is why this assessment of a breath hold is very useful and so important. It's not only a diagnostic, it's a therapeutic. Because while you're holding your breath, you're also in the action of training yourself to tolerate more CO2, which will calm your body down. And going back to this point about the parasympathetic and the nervous system and anxiety, um, why 
does having an, an extended exhale help with anxiety? So you said mm-hmm. breathe in for four, breathe out mm-hmm. for six. Why, do, why does extending that exhale by two seconds help with stress and anxiety? So if you really pay attention, and a lot of people have problems doing this, which is why it's helpful for them to look at their whoop or aura or whatever, you can place your hand over your heart. And when you inhale, you can feel your heart rate increase. And when you exhale, it slows down. This is how HRV works. This is how it's calculated, is the difference in time on that, and the shortest distance to the longest difference. Uh, and this is looking at your nervous system function, respiratory sinus arrhythmia. So how you breathe affects how how many times your heart beats, right? So if you're exhaling, which slows the heart rate down more, what's going to happen to your heart rate? It's going to start slowing down more. And that exhale, that slowing down and telling your body you're in a safe place, that it can relax, is what triggers this response by the nervous system. Interesting. So it's like tricking the tricking the body into believing it's, that. It's such a simple hack. Um, and a lot of people they say, oh, this can't be true. But so many of us have these wearables. You can check it for yourself and mm-hmm. in real time to look at your heart rate variability, changing your breathing pattern. Look at your blood pressure too. For many people, they can just switch their breathing. After a couple of minutes, you can see drops of 15 points. Not for everybody, but for some people, 10 to 15 points just by switching your You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. Breathing. Well, we, we talked about the pandemic earlier on in COVID. One of the big conversations you must have seen playing out was that mm-hmm. masks are um, bad for us because it's like trapping carbon dioxide in mm-hmm. inside the mask, which is making us sick. I even see people having this conversation right now on online in the wake of the pandemic. They're saying, you know, these masks that we put on kids, they've caused sickness and illness in kids. Um, carbon dioxide is kind of seen as this poison. What is your POV on all of this? Oh man, this is even more controversial than the whole breastfeeding thing, but let's <laughs> go there. Okay, so surgeons and dentists have been wearing masks for 100 years. They're yeah. able to function just fine. They wear good quality masks and they wear them when they need to be wearing them. There are several studies that support if everyone wears a mask and if everyone is wearing that mask properly, it does seem to stem some transmission of COVID and other viruses. That's that's the truth. Now let's look at the other side. Has been telling we've been telling people that social distancing, at least in the U.S., they after six months of social distance distancing, which absolutely worked. They said, "No, now you can go out as long as you're wearing a mask." Did that do anything to stem the spread of COVID 
from what I see. No. <laughs> so there's there's a number of problems. Most of the masks that people are wearing are terrible quality. They're filled with chemicals that you are inhaling and they're causing a lot of health issues. Okay. That's that's number one. Second one is most of us are wearing them improperly. We're not wearing them in the right way. The third one is people feel this sense of comfort uh, that they're actually protected wearing this mask, which is not the case in many situations. And this is because I've done my own research looking at carbon dioxide levels in indoor environments and have found these places that we were told that we could go to and we would be safe as long as we're wearing masks. It's completely not the case. Some of these places had such high CO2 that it meant every seventh breath you were inhaling was someone else's breath backwash with someone else's exhale. So I don't care how many masks you're wearing, they are not going to stop the spread of these diseases if you are in an environment where so much of that air has been recycled. So that's really interesting to me. I've never heard this before. The, the idea that the amount of carbon dioxide in the room you're in, which I guess is determined by how well ventilated it is, has a relationship with how much recycled air I take in. How? Absolutely. And this, I learned all this after the book came out. I was talking to a pulmonologist who said, you really need to look into indoor CO2. I said, well, why? He said, that is a good uh, way of determining how much of that air has been recycled. So I bought one of these, which is a carbon dioxide meter. And I've been recording our CO2 during this interview. Jesus. And um, so... Um, if you are outside, it's about 418, depends where you are, 418, 19 parts per million CO2. That's healthy, right? Even though CO2 is going up, it's causing climate change. We all know that. But for breathing, that is perfectly healthy. Once you get into 800 parts per million, some studies have found that <laughs> Sorry, it's going on. When up. they are testing people, when they're testing students, you see a 20% decline in test results just from 800. By the time you get to 1,000, you start suffering from things like eye irritation, sore throats, other issues. So we're probably breathing in every one in every 30 breaths that I'm breathing in is your breath or the cameraman's breath. By the time you get to 2,500, you're in really bad shape. One in every 17 breaths is, is a breath you're breathing from somebody else. So we have been told by authorities that we should only worry about levels that are up to 5,000 parts per million. That is completely false. There are over 18 studies that show levels over 800 into 1,000 can potentially cause problems with bone demineralization, uh, kidney calcification, and chronic inflammation. And so just since we've been sitting in this interview, we started off at 700, and now we're at 1,100. And if we were to continue working in here for the next few hours, this could be up to 1,500, 1,700, which has been shown to have serious uh, issues with, with cognitive function and with physical function. That's very scary. And it, it's cause for a redesign of this studio because, I mean, putting on the air conditioning, would that help? Because that would... That, that would no, it's recycling the same air unless that air is, is coming in from outside. 
Does that air come from outside? I don't think so. I think it's recycled. And uh, a really scary study I read was a lot of schools are at 1,500 to 2,000. Um, several studies have found this. They have shown a 50% dec decrease in test results when students were exposed to air with that much CO2 in it. 50% decrease in test results from 1,500 to 2,000. I've recorded levels up to 4,000 and 5,000 in bars and subways and more. Jesus. Yeah, this isn't my uh, hypothesis either. This is something I was told about about a year after the book came out. And I've seen a lot of scientific studies since, and I sent some of those to your team just to show that this isn't something I'm making up. The the ones you sent to my team, I've, I have um, some notes here I can pull up. Um, in one study of 24 employees, cognitive scores were 50% lower when the participants were exposed to 1,400 ppm of CO2 compared with 550 ppm during a working day. We're nearly there. <laughs> so I am 50% dumber because you've been breathing so much. <laughs> I start to, uh, and I rec highly recommend nobody get one of these Why? because you go crazy wherever really? you are. On an airplane, I've uh, seen 2,700 really? parts per million. And you wonder why you feel like crap after a long flight. And sometimes it goes up and then it comes down because they put in more oxygen. But usually when the plane is warming up, it's 25, 2600, which is why a lot of people just immediately go to sleep. You know, I think maybe they're doing it on purpose to mellow everyone out. But if you think about cognitive function, I mean, this is a 50% decrease it's, in test results is insane. And to think you have kids in these schools taking tests to go into college and all of the air is recycled... I mean, it's just when I mentioned at the beginning of our chat here that the modern world is conspiring to make us unhealthy. I think this is an example. And from what I've seen, very few people are paying any attention to this. And it's real. You're reading the scientific studies over there. This isn't stuff that I'm feeding to you. It almost sounds like I'm smoking. It sounds like I'm inhaling you know, because we talk about people have got to smoke outside to keep mm -hmm. us healthy. So we change the laws in this country so you can't smoke indoors. Mm -hmm. Well, at least smoking is fun and it gives you a buzz, right? <laughs> CO2 is, you can't smell it. It's really hard to sense it. It's invisible. And yet it's always there. Any outside environment, you don't have to worry about it. But indoor environments, especially in the buildings we've created now that don't have windows, I can't tell you how many hotels, sometimes really nice hotels, I go to open the windows. My God, they've glued the windows shut, right? Mm. And overnight, I watch this just ticking up. 100 points every couple Jeez. hours. <laughs> and you wonder why you wake up so feeling so much worse than you did when you first came in there. So this is, this is real stuff. And in a room like this, there's nothing you can do because the HVAC system has been designed to just recycle the air over and over and over again. My hunch, and I'm probably wrong about this, in the next few years, people are going to start requiring, uh, bosses of companies are going to require that there be fresh air for their employees because I think you're going to see big problems with performance. I mean, even just sitting here, now that you know this. I feel tired. <laughs> 
So some of that's a placebo effect, sure. But but don't you feel a little like warm and tired? So so take my word for it. Do not travel with one of these. It will make you a complete neurotic. I'm doing it because I want to document it. I'm going to be updating future editions of the book with some of this information because I didn't know about this when the book came out. But I think people really need to know about this and start asking hotels, can I open the window? Start out before you rent an office. Can I open the window? Like it's that easy. You just need to open it a little bit. Mm. Makes a huge difference just opening it a little bit. People can't see this, but we sit in a room here and we like air seal it for sound reasons. Yeah. So we don't have any windows in here. Um, and we actually move this. This is a replica of my old kitchen, which is on the top floor of this building. So we, the reason which had this wonderful, huge balcony over there that you could open the mm. whole side of the, 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 um, that side of the building and walk outside into the fresh air. Mm. But we moved it down here and made, made this little chamber because of sound reasons. I do sit in here for sometimes nine hours a day. So there's been an occasion a few times where I've done three podcasts in a day. And I feel that now you've said it, I do <laughs> feel incredibly fatigued. I'm sure it's because I'm talking and, you know, having really, you know, sort of challenging my brain a little bit, but I, I only, I can only wonder if the studies are correct and there's a 50% variance in my cognitive scores, what would happen if I found a way to get oxygen into this room? More oxygen in the carbon dioxide out. I promise you'd feel better. I'm going to figure out how, how to much do that. better. Who knows? Yeah. Depends on the day, depends on the person. I promise you'd feel better. I promise your brain would be operating and functioning better than it is now. We're not meant to be in four white walls trapped inside, are we? And this is the never, misalignment problem. Never. This is that misalignment problem. Even a hundred years ago, right? Every building had windows that you could open. Even 50 years ago, every build, almost every building had, had windows you could open. But, but now the standard protocol is because it's easier to heat and easier to cool, right? You're creating this, this bubble, which is why if you go into like a Walmart, one of those stores, there's no windows, there's no anything. You just got blue light in this bubble. You can control the, the environment much more easily. But what is it doing to people's health? You know, uh, so this is, I'm the guy that asked for a hotel room. Does it have a window? And you get really funny looks until you start traveling with one of these and start reading these studies and you realize how important it is. So interesting. One of the things that, I, that I've really taken from this is when I wrote my book, um, I always go to the jungle to write. I literally mm -hmm. write the book in nature. I've just realized that I'm actually increasing my cognitive um, performance by going and sitting down by a lake every year and writing versus doing it inside an office. So when I reflect on tasks that require real cognitive performance, honestly, like having an interview conversation or writing a book or any sort of deep sort of intellectual cognitive tasks, it's so important that those rooms and those spaces are well ventilated. Or else and, and the right light. And so the those, right light, those, yeah. those two things I think are very important. And I think we're going to see so much of this changing in our culture soon because people are going to ask for it and they're going to feel the difference. So there's a whole bunch of different reasons why you're thinking more clearly. It's not just the lack of CO2, right, in the environment. It's the natural light. Your nature itself is just so inspiring yeah. and relaxing. But this is one component of it, without a doubt. 
I'm shocked that nobody has ever told me that this before. I've never Sorry heard about that. No, but Ignorance is bliss. Like if yeah, I hadn't I know, done this, but... we'd, we'd both feel energized and ready to roll. But I'm the type of person that would rather be empowered by information. I like when people turn the lights on because we go through our lives um, misdiagnosing the problems we're dealing with. And so for mm -hmm. me, knowledge is power because of course I've sat in this chair for you know a long time and to know that there's a potential to potentially increase my cognitive performance when I'm doing a com conversation just by finding a way to get oxygen into this room is is profound. Without a doubt. It's a profound I, advantage. I, I ensure that that will happen. In the morning, when you do this diagnostic of holding your breath, so you get to the hotel room, you do this mm -hmm. diagnostic, you hold your breath. Do you time it on a stopwatch? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I time it on my watch. So what this is, is you can call it a bolt score body oxygen level test you can call it a control pod call it whatever you want all it is is you take a breath in we're gonna relax okay i thought we were doing a race a i wanted to beat you and become the champion we're gonna i'm sure you will <laughs> i beat james nestor at breathing <laughs> you take a calm breath in okay and i'll tell you what it is and then we'll maybe do it which will make for terrible podcast time <laughs> you guys can just snip it out but we're just going to take a calm breath not a okay. big breath calm breath in to that point where it just stops when you're exhaling you don't push the air out it just naturally stops that neutral point okay just take it we'll just practice this right now take a breath in just let the air out there will be a point where it just naturally stops yeah that's when you start the timer okay on that neutral hold so you just take a breath in and breathe out. I'm not going to tell you when I'm going to do this so you don't take an extra big breath and breathe in again. Just breathe out to neutral. Hold your breath. Hold it. As you're holding your breath, the first point at which you feel resistance, that means a swallow, that means your diaphragm starts convulsing gently, that means you feel a buildup of pressure at the back. You have to be honest with yourself. This is not a maximum breath hold test. This is the very first point that you feel some palpable discomfort. Then you go back to normal breathing. So you won't be doing yourself any favors if you're cheating past that threshold. Okay. Yeah. So good. So what you want to get to is 40 seconds. And when you return to breathing, the way that you know you've gone too far is mm -hmm. when you go. <sighs> yeah. Your okay. return should be calm. You're not seeing me return. Okay. There is no effort. So these are good gauges to know that you pushed it too far. Okay. So what you want to be going for is 40 seconds or more to be holding your breath and you got 40 seconds i think you pushed a little too far really yeah. but um most, i was waiting for that point of just feeling a little bit uncomfortable and then most athletes even elite athletes get to 20 seconds when they first start doing this and they've trained themselves to push through the pain they compete and they win but their bodies are not happy <laughs> which is why so many athletes peak and then they're a complete mess after they stop competing that this happens with football players, this happens with baseball players and more. What most people do is about 15 seconds. 
15 seconds. 15 seconds. You would be surprised, especially older people, especially people who have respiratory problems. As I mentioned before, people with asthma and panic, about three to five seconds if they have severe asthma and panic. So you just start to understand how dysfunctionally their breathing is, their CO2 tolerance, their ability for their lungs to extract oxygen, their nervous system, and more. Just because you got a low score, that is just a diagnostic and it's a starting point to improve your breathing. This is not a competition. Do not compete with yourself. <laughs> we can get to stuff that is very competitive if you'd like, but this test is just to tune in to how your body is responding. And another warning I want to be very, very clear about, do not take one number and think you're good to go. This changes in the morning, changes if your sleep is bad, changes if your sleep is good, changes after you eat and more. So you take these throughout the day, maybe three times a day. And after a week of recording that number, you average it. That's your number that you're working with. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. So, so take it at night, take it in the morning, take it at noon. And just put it in your phone, and then at the end of that week, you'll have your your Bolt score, is what they call it. Patrick McEwen calls it that. Can't stop looking at your carbon dioxide monitor. And yeah. the more I did see it, it flash... did we just tick up here? Yeah, we, I wish this yeah. was like a stock meter. We'd be in Gosh, good good Jesus, shape. You know, you mentioned asthma there. Um, the, I mean my my perception of asthma. I don't suffer from asthma, so I don't know a ton about it. I've never no point in my life have I been forced to to learn about it or has my curiosity led me there so far but when i uh, my understanding of asthma is that people are born with it and then they're given medicine mm -hmm. that is the general accepted understanding of asthma and it's wrong so some people are naturally predisposed to have asthma but that is not a life sentence of asthma and the idea that a three-year-old a friend of mine his kid has asthma uh is given a buterol given all these different drugs they're taking out his adenoids they're taking out his tonsils no one's looking at his breathing i asked my friend i said how does your kid breathe at night he's like oh he snores all night long with an open mouth how does he breathe in the day his mouth is constantly open i said nobody mentioned that nobody mentioned that so i don't go for unless you've got a genetic neurological disease right i don't mm. go for this argument that diseases that come on that are diseases of civilization that we are stuck with these diseases our whole life. We certainly know that's true with diabetes. Who thought that diabetes is actually reversible? Type 2 diabetes is reversible by adopting a different diet. It is re There's a company called Verda, and this is what they do. They reverse diabetes. The same thing is true for asthma and anxiety. That's my belief. At minimum, you can reduce the symptoms. If it really works out well, you won't have any symptoms at all. And I can say this now because I've talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of people who suffered through asthma for decades. They weren't able to go outside and play as a kid. They had to stay indoors. They had to stay locked up. Their breathing was terrible, who now have no symptoms of asthma by taking control of their breathing. Seems impossible. There's a number of different clinical trials showing that the effects of healthy breathing showing exactly what these effects of healthy breathing can do for asthmatics. That three-year-old, your friend's mm -hmm. three-year-old. Yeah. Can you play out that story? What did, mm -hmm. what did that, what, what was the end of that story? He called me up and he's like, 
you know a bit about breathing. I said, a little bit. You know, what what can I do for you? He told me what was going on. He's like, they're taking out their adenoids. They're taking out this kid's tonsils. He's three years old. They're taking out the kid's tonsils yes. at three. And adenoids. Uh, because they think that he, you know, that is the root cause of of his asthma. Uh, this will allow him to breathe better. But what they don't realize, what they didn't mention, as I mentioned earlier, if you just take out adenoids and tonsils, but don't fix the underlying breathing dysfunction, all those problems come back. And this is true with asthma. This is true with sleep apnea. This is true with snoring and more. So you have to fix that core issue. So I hooked him up with a very well-known breathing therapist who, and he's now, this just happened last week. I said, I'm not going to argue with your doctor and your surgeon. Maybe your kid needs all these things taken out immediately. I will argue with the comment that he's going to be on oral steroids and bronchodilators for the rest of his life. I, I said, I don't think he's starting off on a good foot at three years old. So he's now, and I'll let you know how it goes. Uh, but if what happens to him happens to the hundreds and hundreds of other people I've heard from, you can reduce the symptoms and in some cases reverse them entirely. You mentioned tonsils. It just perked my curiosity because thinking back through my childhood, every you know, so many people have yeah, their tonsils yeah, taken yeah, out. Yeah. And mm -hmm. now I reflect on that through the frame of like hmm, misalignment and ancestors and stuff i go why would we be cutting something out of our body um that must be a misalignment problem of sorts i the, the, that must be a symptom of the environment we live in not being right for the human body that's my guess why would a part of the human body that's taken millions of years to evolve to this certain function just all of a sudden be of no use in the past 40 years <laughs> you have to start to ask that question so what is the root cause of those inflamed adenoids and tonsils? Is it the fact that they are there and that's the problem? Maybe for some people genetically, right, that, that could be the issue. But what's causing that inflammation? You have to answer that question first before you're going to fix it. And just going into a three-year-old to their mouth and starting to rip things out, I, my personal opinion is that that's a really bad idea. I would go through a bunch of different methods to see if you can improve the core condition first before you revert to that. Surgery is great. I know people who have had their breathing absolutely transformed by doing nasal surgery. It works wonderfully for so many people. But I would try to see what you can do with your natural body first. So interesting. I told you my partner, she, um, she's got, I think she's got like a deviated mm -hmm. septum or something, mm -hmm. which means yep. that breathing, you can always hear a breathing through her nose. Mm -hmm. Pretty much all the time, especially when mm -hmm. she sleeps. Mm -hmm. Like, kind of something when she goes to sleep. It's like, even, you know, she'll wear, to be fair, she started wearing mouth tape. I wanted mm -hmm. to talk to you about this. She started wearing this thing called Maya tape, which goes mm -hmm. around her lips and has a hole in the middle. Yeah. Um, but that having that Maya tape around her mouth, when we looked at her whoop scores in the morning, really interestingly, her heart rate was flatter than ever. So usually what you'd see in our heart rate is kind of these like spikes upwards throughout the night. So sometimes it might spike up to 60 or 70. But with the, with the mouth tape around her lips, which kept, it kind of keeps your mouth closed throughout the night, mm -hmm. her heart rate, super flat, her wake events down, mm -hmm. her sleep efficiency up. Mm -hmm. I hear this every day. <laughs> really? I mean, it's, yeah. yeah, this is the, the beauty of nasal breathing. What the brain wants is a consistent 
fluid signal. It gets that signal from your breathing. So there's a study I'll send you guys on this, that the clock, the master clock of sleep and of the brain at night is that cyclical, deep, easy breathing pattern. This is what the body doesn't want to have to fight and defend itself when it's sleeping. This is its time to rest and restore and grow, right? If you're constantly waking up, what's that doing? The body has to stop what it's doing, the repair mechanisms, and address the threat over and over and over. And that's what's happening when people are struggling to breathe. <sighs> Breathing like that. So this doesn't shock me at all. This is exactly what happened to me. This was my same experience. And it's the experience that hundreds of people have had and they've sent me their sleep scores for some some reason, showing their <laughs> heart rate variability, showing their uh, how much more deep sleep they're getting mm -hmm. and showing how rested they are in, in the morning. So no matter how you get to nasal breathing, if it's by force of will, some people can just will themselves. I think that's awesome. That's <laughs> the greatest way of doing it. If it's a piece of tape, that's what I like using. Myotape's fantastic. It's been around for a long time. And it takes away some of the paranoia that people have with first taping their mouth. It's especially good for kids. You don't want to tape a kid's mouth. This myotape just sort of it provides a gentle reminder to keep your mouth shut. At any time you can talk, you can breathe through your mouth, but it's it's just gently reminding you to keep your mouth shut. I think it's great. Some people use chin straps, whatever you want to use, but breathing in and out through your nose at night has so many benefits. Your girlfriend has seen it. Millions of people Crazy. have experienced it now, and it's free and easy, available for everybody. It's just, it's profound. And, you know, this, this whole discovery of breath and sleep and the, the two-way relationship has just been so illuminating for me. And that's part, huge, hugely part of the reason why I wanted to have a conversation with you to get that message out, out there. Um, the perfect rhythm of breathing. There was this fascinating thing you talked about that there is a perfect rhythm to breathing, which is, it was quite spooky reading mm -hmm. about it. <laughs> what is the perfect rhythm to breathing in? It depends on who you are. I've learned a lot more about oh, really? this okay. as well. Okay. But a good first place to start is this five to six seconds in, five to six seconds out. You can get more geeky after you hit that. I used to call this 5.5. I write about this in the book with 5.5 seconds in, 5.5 seconds out. That's 5.5 breaths per minute. That's what researchers found to be really the most beneficial but then I got so many inquiries and emails and letters from people saying, you know, I'm into the slow breathing, but I can't hit that half second and it's driving me crazy. And I've been trying for two weeks. I'm like, good God, what have I done here? So I'm now telling people five to six seconds is fine. You don't have to worry about uh, that no. half second half being, being off <laughs> anything in that range. But what I've learned since this book has come out that tall people, six foot, six one and above should be breathing even slower, larger lungs, uh, diaphragm has more time to descend. So around four and a half breaths per minute. So that's about eight seconds in, eight seconds out, even slower. And for kids, they naturally need to breathe more. So you want to start a kid off at start at three in, three out, just starting there and working up to that. So this is a general guide that will work for most people, a good launching spot. But once you get there and you're comfortable for that, you can actually view in real time 
your HRV to find your perfect, perfect rhythm? Because it varies a little bit for most people. Slow, so slow is better. Slower if, you're t- is better. if you're taller, yes. But, but not necessarily. For some people who have panic, anxiety, who don't have a very good CO2 threshold, you have to start with two in, two out. Just doing that. Once you get comfortable with that, let's go three in, three out. Four in, four out, right? And you find what's most comfortable for you. And it's wonderful being in the world of wearables where you can actually see where your body is responding most to. My girlfriend does a lot of um, that kind of... It's almost I can almost describe it as like a psychedelic experience. Um, is that what they call inner, the, the, the inner fire stuff mm-hmm. or is that the holotropic? I don't really know the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. But that when you do the breathing breathing ceremonies that almost it was almost like my ego dropped away the first time i did it i felt so emotional the first time i did it mm-hmm. I, not in a not in like a sad like a sad way i just could see things a little bit more clearly in my life mm-hmm. the first time i did one of these breathwork sessions with her and i felt the need to apologize to a bunch of people because i just i'd had an argument with someone that day about something small mm-hmm. and i just felt it was almost like my ego had just like dissolved or something What's going on there? Mm. What is that? You know, because it's all people are prescribing this as a cure for like mental health and trauma. Mm. And well, I could tell you what's going on biologically, I could tell you what's going on psychologically, psychically, and, and more. We'll start with the biology. A lot of these very vigorous breathing techniques, which I would strongly suggest people figure out your breath foundation before you go on to these, don't mm. just jump into this stuff. Mm-hmm. Everything we've talked about, nasal breathing, slow breathing, proper biomechanics. If you figure out all that, you will get so much more out of these more vigorous breathing exercises. So a lot of these have you breathe very fast, sometimes through the mouth. And you may be saying, well, I thought you just said we shouldn't be breathing through the mouth. For these short exercises, it's perfectly fine. And you breathe that way to specifically elicit a stress response in your body that you are creating. It's the same thing with ice baths, right? Mm -hmm. Those aren't relaxing. They cause a stress response. So when you're breathing pranayama, kundalini, holotropic, you are stressing your body out. And then you're learning how to use your breath to calm your body down, right? Because all of these breathing techniques, you, and then you hold your breath and then you breathe slow. And then you go back to, and then you hold your breath. So you are learning how to take control of your nervous system function and stress. And so that stress, you're compacting into this exercise so you don't carry it around with you the rest of the day, like I do and so many other people do. So you go there, you blow a fuse, and then you're able to be chill the rest of the day. So biologically, what's happening to your blood flow, when you're over-breathing, you are inhibiting blood flow to your brain. People, I've heard this in breathwork classes, people say, the more you breathe, the more oxygen's getting to your brain, that's why you're getting so high. The opposite is happening. You're inhibiting blood flow. Right now, if we were to over-breathe, and (laughs) you're going to feel lightheaded, you're going to feel some tingling in your fingers, that's not from an increase of blood circulation, but a decrease. So you can breathe into a state in which you have 40% less blood flow to your brain by 
over-breathing. Holotropic is classic. You start feeling all kinds, your My hands start yeah. going like this. That's yeah. from all, all the ionized calcium being glommed on with albumin. Um, so all of these and lack of CO2. So this is a classic response. Some, some breathwork people say, it's because you're going back in time and you're becoming a bird. And all that's beautiful if you want to believe that. But what is actually happening to your body is that we're losing that calcium is being sucked up and that CO2 is being inhibited so that vasodilation is happening and it's causing, you felt that, mm -hmm. I felt it too. It's, it's freaky when it first happens, but it's completely natural and it comes back when you hold your breath or you breathe more slowly. I only knew I was doing that because of a photo. So they took mm -hmm. a photo of me while I was doing the, the breathwork yeah. exercise and my, my, my hands were yeah. in the air. I didn't put them there yeah. and my fingers were curled like a crab. It was like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that. Whoever's running that breathwork is doing the right thing. Yeah. Because you want to get to that state if you're ready for that state. So that's what's happening to, to the brain and the body. You are denying yourself oxygen. You are stressing yourself out so that you can live without that stress after that class. Sorry, so how is it getting the stress out of me, though? The same way that a cold bath is getting okay, the yeah, stress you out of you. The same way that going to a gym for half an hour or an hour, you're working, Washing you're getting the stress out. Got the you. same way of going to a yoga class for an hour, you're like, I feel so relaxed, right? This is compounding that stress. It's stressing out your physical body and your brain. It's really pushing it so that you can be reacquainted with what a threat actually is, right? Ah. You're not oversensed. So when an email comes in from a friend and they're being kind of pissy at you, you don't completely lose your top, right? Ah, and say, okay. I never want to talk to you again. And I think that's one of the reasons why after that class, you just went, whoa, I have a better perspective on what stress is, how I should be treating other people around me, and how my brain should be feeling, that relaxed feeling that you have. So it's, it's harder to quantify psychologically, especially psychically or spiritually what's happening. That's a very personal experience. However, I will say, having done a lot of this intense breath work, you know, this vigorous breath work, I've seen people absolutely transformed by it. Um, they do it one time, then they come back the second time, they're a little better at it, and they get rid of a lot of luggage, psychological luggage. People have go through some real stuff when they're doing it. I think it's beautiful because this is something that we're doing completely naturally with our own bodies that we have access to. There's nothing exogenous about it, right? You know, this is something that, that we are commanding inside our nervous systems. So that's something I think needs to be explored a lot more. I tried numerous times to get into an MRI machine. I wanted to do blood work. I did one study, which was not in this book, in the hypoxia lab at San Francisco, one of the oldest hypoxia labs. And it freaked out the researchers so much that they really didn't want to, want to be a part of it. So um, because my hands did that oh, thing okay, right. and they were pulling blood and my CO2 was so low that, you know, they wanted to put me into the ER. I said, no, no, I feel great. I said, this is what it's supposed to be doing. But they want to see everything consistent all the time, right? They see these big dips in CO2. They see this stress. They associate that with serious illness. They don't realize when you bring it on yourself, it's something that you can help to master. And, and so uh, I hope that more research will, will look into what happens to the brain during these vigorous breathing exercises because not a lot has been done. But I know it's very beneficial for people. And there's been several studies showing just how beneficial it is for depression, 
for anxiety, even autoimmune issues and more. Of all the things we've discussed, what is the most important thing that we've missed that is pertinent to breathing, health, well-being, and, you know, daily practices? What is the most important subject matter that, that we've missed in this conversation? I don't think it's necessarily that we've missed anything. I think it's the importance of sort of doubling down on a point I've tried to make a few times is you don't need to pay for this stuff. You don't need to read a bunch of different scientific articles to know that breath is a healing and very nourishing modality. This is something that's available to us all day long, all night long. So you can just focus on these simple things, get good at those simple things and work up from there. Ultimately, I would love if people finally were able to work up to go to these big breathwork, powerful sessions, because I don't know anyone that's gone to one of these and hasn't really gotten something yeah, out of it. Same. I think you're, uh, yeah, I went to, you're, yeah. you're living proof of that right now. I'm so an ultimate our, skeptic as well. As, so, as am I. That's yeah. the nature of, of my job. So just adopt these, these simple things. And I will say a final word, breathing dysfunction is a serious problem, especially with kids, especially for adults as well. So take this seriously, fix it. And uh, I think you'll really see the benefits from that. You're here in part because you're doing a BBC Maestro series, aren't you? I am. My team told me. Yes. Which is very exciting. So that Maestro series, have you written it yet? Do you know what it's? it's... I am in the midst right after this. Okay, uh, great. Okay, write well, it up. Yep. And I'm presuming it's going to be on some some of the subject matter we've discussed. It it will be. It it's a basic guide and toolbox of exactly what to do and when and how to improve these conditions. But it also contains. 90% of this book was thrown out, right? Because I didn't want to have a 600-page book. So I'm able to slip in all this other stuff that was thrown out and some of this more mystical, some history, but a lot of science as well. James, I, I'm, I could talk to you forever about this. I really, really could. Such a, Your way of articulating the points and the research you've done is so captivating but I can see our carbon dioxide is ticking up. So <laughs> we're getting Just close to 30. Just in that time, about yeah. 170 points. Until I it's so funny. I feel like I'm like, you know, a little bit like all of a sudden. I am going to buy one of those things though. We have a closing tradition. Okay. Which is the last guest leaves a question for the next guest, not knowing who they're going to leave, be leaving it for. The question left for you. Very simple. What is it that drives you to be the best version of you? Curiosity. That's all, that's the only thing that, not the only thing, but the main thing that I wake up in the morning, I'm excited to take on the day because I have the luxury of having a job that allows me to be curious. I've had a lot of jobs that did not allow me to be curious, but I'm able to ask questions and have conversations and it's every day is, uh, is a privilege because of that. Well, I think from reading this book, as I said, this is the book that has sat on my bedside, on my girlfriend's side for the last, I think, a year, roughly since we moved into that new place. You've done a phenomenally great job of condensing the information to make it accessible um, and relatable to every type of reader out there. But it's so, it's like a light, every other page, there's almost like a light bulb that's being switched on in my head about the way that I'm living my life and how small, simple things that, as you say, aren't complex. I don't need to buy some 
huge course or I don't need to become a master in anything can have a fundamental change in my life. And that's why this book is so unbelievably important. But I mean, the book speaks for itself because this book is sold like absolute crazy. And it's one of those books that is being driven by word of mouth. One person is Mm -hmm. passing it to another, you know, I can talk through the people in my team and the web of how the book traveled and Jemima and then Mel and, and Sophie and so on. And I think that speaks to this book. I think it's fun. It's a shame. It's a real shame that I actually believe that this book is now required reading, (laughs) but it speaks to the misalignment problem and how far we've gotten from good habits as it relates to breathing and the consequences that, that it's had on our health. Um, I'm very excited to see the BBC Maestro series as well. I'll be checking out, looking out for that because I love those series and they provide, a, as you say, a, 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 an actionable toolkit for mm. a lot of the things we're talking about today. I love the way you approach subject matters. I love the impartiality of it. I love the fact that you lead with the evidence first. Um, and as you've done throughout this conversation, you try and keep your opinion second, secondary to what the evidence is saying, um, which I think is really important. And a lot of people actually, they get quite scared of what the evidence is saying. So they either avoid it or um, they don't mention it at all. But you you hold that line really, really well. Your work is going to help so many people. I, can, I can't imagine millions and millions of people that you'll never get to meet. So on behalf of all of those people, including my girlfriend, as I said, she started a studio upstairs called Bali Breathwork because, in part because of what you wrote. So afterwards, I'd just love to show you it, but um, just so you can see it, because it's, it's an example for you of all the lives that you'll never meet that your work is touching. You'll never, you'll never get to meet, you know, you'd probably, if we hadn't met today, you wouldn't even know there was a studio that had launched in London because of your work, or there was someone that's dedicated their life now to helping people with breath because of your work. So um, on behalf of all those people you'll never meet, thank you, James. Your work is very necessary. And I can't wait to see what you write about next. I'm very intrigued. I heard there's a book on the way. Very excited by that. Thank you very much for having me. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, so head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.